Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Hi, and welcome to Think About It, a podcast hosted by me, Ulrich Baer. 16 times in the space of about one page. That's how many times Ernest Hemingway used the N-word in an episode that's crucial to understand The Sun Also Rises, his 1926 novel that really established his fame. It was his first published novel, and in today's conversation with Linda Patterson Miller, I talk about what makes that book so important for several generations of readers. What Hemingway tried to do by really reinventing what American prose is capable of, and why it became a key text to understand the 20th century. But I also talked with Linda Patterson Miller, who's an expert on Hemingway and who's been a really important critic to assess especially the role of women in Hemingway's prose from a feminist perspective, and to see how we can teach and read books like The Sun Also Rises Today that use words that are not just simply offensive, but truly problematic in our culture. They were problematic in 1926 as well, and Hemingway knew that. So I wrote an essay about the use of these terms in Hemingway's novel that is now published as an introduction to a new edition of The Sun Also Rises with Warbler Press. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out at the Warbler Press website. It's a new edition, as I just said. And I was really inspired by my conversation with Linda Patterson Miller, who was also tremendously helpful in having me think through some of these dilemmas which are whether we should cancel books that no longer correspond to the values of our time, or whether we should simply reflexively defend the authors and saying they're from a bygone era and we can't hold them to our own standards. My suggestion is to hold Hemingway to his own standards, a writer of incredible diligence and care who chose every word carefully and to understand what he's doing when instead of describing a character in different ways, he uses an epithet 16 times to somehow do something in the novel that yet needs to be understood. I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Think About It, a podcast devoted to big ideas and great books, and that you'll find that Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises is a book absolutely worth rereading in the 21st century. Uh, welcome to the Think About It podcast. I'm your host, Uli Bear. First of all, I'm really excited to welcome a distinguished guest, uh, Linda Patterson-Miller. First of all, Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. And before we start, I just want to remind our listeners, you can find us on Think About It, uh, uh, thinkaboutit.podcast on Instagram. I'm also on Instagram as uli.bear. And then the podcast is hosted on all the platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, et cetera, and the New Books Network now, which I'm very happy that they host us, their consortium of academic podcasts, so that gives it a lot of new listeners. Um, Linda, if I, if I may, I'll introduce you first. You're a distinguished professor at Penn State in Abington near Philadelphia, 
um, distinguished professor of English and one of the experts, great experts on Hemingway, uh, the topic of our conversation today. Uh, you are the author of a very important set of articles. One of them included in Hemingway and Women, Female Critics and the Female Voice, which I want to ask you something about where a lot of, especially women critics, responded to the questions swirling in the Hemingway world around uh, his depiction of women. And you're the editor of this amazingly important book, Letters from the Lost Generation, Gerald and Sarah Murphy and Friends, the couple that had a villa in the south of France on the French Riviera, Villa America, where Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and so many other people were guests or residents for periods and who were very, very, very close to Hemingway himself. So you edited the letters and some of those letters are especially between Sarah Murphy and Ernest Hemingway. And in addition, you've um, curated exhibits about the Murphys and you've published widely on Hemingway. And if I can start you out, Linda, uh, for our listeners, um, today I, I would love to start at least uh, the conversation on Hemingway's 1926 novel, his first novel, The Sun Also Rises, which is now 95 years old, which seems a long time, and yet I just reread the book twice. It's such a, an immediate experience in reading it. It's very alive on the page. And somehow I think that force of presence created in that book is both one of its main attractions and also one of the reasons why it's so widely discussed and maybe even provokes very strong responses in people. And if you could say maybe something about your first encounter with Hemingway and then this novel, which defines him, I think, for a lot of uh, readers who probably have their first introduction to Hemingway through a few of the short stories. And then maybe this novel, The Sun Also Rises or Farewell to Arms. But for me, it was definitely The Sun Also Rises, which I was assigned. Uh, this is a biographical moment in high school, in Abington High School, about two miles away from where you teach at Penn State Abington, where I went to high school as an exchange student in 1982. And Hemingway was definitely part of the curriculum there. Well, I really respond to what you said initially about the impact of your reading of Sense Arises. Um, I find that students immediately, too, have that response that you had, that you step into that novel and it's just alive on the page. It does what Hemingway said occasionally when he felt he was writing well, that he was moving in it as he wrote it. And the reader gets that sense of immediacy that you're just stepping into this space and you can't let it go. It's very evocative, it's very um, provocative. Um, I encountered Hemingway really as a high school student myself, just on my own reading. I was an avid reader and I um, went to my Park Ridge, Illinois library, Park Ridge being near Oak Park where Hemingway was born and lived as a young man. And um, I just randomly would pull books off the shelves, hoping that I could read the whole library. But I vividly remember my first encounter with Hemingway. It was reading A Farewell to Arms. And I was just captivated by that book. Here I am, this high school student, and I felt it was just so alive and I could feel the crunching of the snow as Catherine Barkley and um, Frederick Henry are walking the, the mountains and of uh, 
of Europe there. And from there, I just read more and more Hemingway, but probably wasn't really until I was in graduate school that I encountered him more um, powerfully. I was taking a course on Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and um, it was one of my first graduate school courses. And I had to um, write a paper using primary documents. So I was in graduate school at University of Delaware, which is near Princeton. And the Fitzgerald papers are housed in Princeton. And I went with another friend from the class to Princeton. We took the train and we, it was like a big outing. We were gonna get about in Princeton and see where Fitzgerald hung out and where he lived, where he drank. Uh, we finally made our way to the library. Um, and I remember just thinking, okay, I had no idea what I was gonna focus in on. I had looked at the collections a little bit, but I saw this folder marked um, Murphy's and the librarian brought me that folder. I asked for it and I opened it and I'm reading right up, up front this letter from this woman to Fitzgerald that, say, that says um, something to the fact that you don't know anything about anybody, least of all yourself. You've got a lot of rocks loose in your basement and um, you don't really care about anybody else. Um, love, Sarah. And I was so stunned, you know, here this marvelous writer of The Great Gatsby that had so impressed me, um, telling him off. And I thought, who is this woman, Sarah Murphy? So I began the seductive um, act of research, tracing down who is Sarah Murphy and began to learn of Sarah and Gerald Murphy and their relationship with Fitzgerald and the letters that they sent to um, Fitzgerald and then his letters to them in, in turn. So it began this whole seductive journey of research into these last generation people. Um, that led to recognizing that Hemingway was very much a part of this last generation group that hung out during the early 20s with Gerald and Sarah Murphy at their villa on the French Riviera. And I must confess that Hemingway began more and more to take over. I became intrigued by Hemingway, by his personal life, by his relationships with all these art, artists in France at that time, and certainly then by his work itself, which I found so extraordinarily and so timeless. So more and more, I began to really study um, Hemingway, and I incorporated him directly um, into my teaching. I must say that students find it fascinating to learn about the lives of these artists. They really enjoy learning about Hemingway's life, Fitzgerald's life. And um, they really appreciate reading letters, the correspondence of these artists with each other. The, my book, you mentioned Letters from the Last Generation, which is a group correspondence. And it is unusual in that sense because you're getting the letters back and forth between all of these figures with Gerald and, Gerald and Sarah Murphy and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Dorothy Parker and Archibald McLeish and John Dos Passos. And students really love to see them as real people, mm -hmm. relationships they had with each other. And then in turn to see how the real life played into the literature. How did their art derive from what they experienced as people living this, this life? And one thing I think that students really um, recognize profoundly is the way that Hemingway in particular captured the lived life 
more than any other writer that I know, he captured the lived life. There is just, as you mentioned, that immediacy to his art. And he wasn't trying to, to fake it. He himself said that, um, I don't know if we're allowed to say this word online, but he said he had an, his own in-belt, inbuilt shit detector that could detect phony. And um, I think there is that dimension to his writing that it is so uh, authentic, absolutely authentic. Um, he's not playing any games. And so a lot of what he's doing in his art too is showing the real world and real people. His characters are so real. And the sun also rises, so some of the most real characters in all of American literature, I think. Um, and so it's a question of how he was able to do that. He wasn't playing games with it at all. Um, he just wanted it to be true. He said himself that he wanted to start with one true sentence. And of course, scholars and readers of Hemingway continue to question, what does that mean What to find that one true sentence? Um, but The Sun Also Rises, it's interesting, uh, the story begins with the um, talk of Jake Barnes about Robert Cohen. And originally when he had finished the manuscript of The Sun Also Rises, it opened with a whole chapter on Brett Ashley and the history of, of Brett Ashley. And when Fitzgerald down the Riviera Beach in the summer of 1925, read the draft of the manuscript that um, Hemingway gave him to read, Fitzgerald told Hemingway to get rid of that whole first chapter and um, start immediately with um, Jake talking about Robert Cohen. Hemingway took his advice, but of course he uh, claimed credit for it. He said that he decided to eliminate the first chapter and, and Scott agreed with him. <laughs> he said, and it really was Scott's idea, which is kind of ironic because here's Fitzgerald telling Hemingway that what's important is what you more important is what you leave out than what you put in. Um, and that's certainly a basic principle to Hemingway's writing that makes it so powerful. I mean, it's hard to talk about Hemingway's writing in a way because you know, people ask, well, what is it about Hemingway? What is it that gives it such power? I think Hemingway came to understand that um, as he himself said it, what you leave out is more important than what you put in. Uh, like the tip of the iceberg. They just see the tip of the iceberg and seven eighths is down under. And it's definitely there, it's a powerful mass, but you don't see it. Um, and he said, if the writer knows what he's leaving out, the reader will feel it more than understand it. And there's a powerful emotional undertow in all of Hemingway's writing so that when you step into it, you're sort of just drawn into that. I liken it to, um, stepping into a room where you know, people have been talking and you come into the room and suddenly everybody stops talking and mm -hmm. look at them and you question, okay, what's going on here? What, are, what aren't you telling me? What aren't you telling me? And that's kind of a representation, I think, of how Hemingway's art functions. It's, it's all there you know, under the surface and it, it makes it really, really powerful. This is really great. I want to pick up on two things you said, or a few things. So Sarah Murphy writes to Fitzgerald and is really critical and says, you basically have a few rocks in your basement, you have a school. Yeah. Kind of irreverent, which to us 
is striking since by now Fitzgerald is a myth unto himself as all these people are. So you think someone could have actually been critical of them. Then you said, Fitzgerald says to Hemingway, nice try, but the first two chapters don't work at all. Just delete them. Hemingway later on, as he does with many of his friends, will claim credit. But the point being rather that there's a lot of work that goes into what we now experience as this authenticity or the truthfulness or this kind of directness. And what's I think quite interesting that Hemingway is really after this. And I would, I would like to ask you, when this novel comes out in 1926, people say, what well, is this an immediacy we haven't quite seen? These are just how people are. Yeah. A certain set of people, they are very entitled, spoiled Americans in Europe. We'll talk about them in a minute. You know, they're not that likable in a way. You kind of want to hang out with them, but only if you're of a certain type. But this immediacy, what do you think it was working against? What idea was there that life was otherwise not real, it was false, or it was a kind of pretense? What Hemingway was essentially trying to strip away. I think that you have to put it in the context of the times, as we as we always do. And um, and again, the question you raised initially, like how does a work like Sunnels Arises resonate today? You know, um, is it indeed timeless? And, and are there aspects of it that really um, kind of date it and make it inappropriate and just not acceptable as a, a great classical work of literature? In the context of the times, you have to consider World War I. Mm-hmm how huge that was um, historically. If you line it up with this idea of, you know, getting into this war, the propaganda of the war, it's gonna be the war to end all wars. It's gonna be the war for democracy. It's gonna be the war for Lady Liberty. All this kind of propaganda and euphemism and, Guys like Hemingway, who, who joined up, I mean, America came into that war late, but who joined up with that and kind of embraced all of that euphemistic language. But when confronted with the reality of that war, the devastation of that war, it's one of the most brutal wars that what we have fought. Um, new technology of war and face-to-face combat and, and um, maiming of bodies so that you see, for example, just a guy's face blasted away. And how do you deal with that? Well, the, the cover-up is, well, we, we're starting to get plastic surgery and we could just make a mask. And you see some of these videos, clips from the war scenes where the, the really main soldier puts on this new face. And mm-hmm. it, wow, but it's fake. It's fake, it's mm-hmm. cover-up. Um, T.S. Eliot, writes about that in the love song of Jeffrey Pufat, the idea of putting on a face to meet the faces that you need. So coming out of that war, Hemingway and his colleagues, I think, recognized the disillusionment of that war. Mm-hmm. I think you can overplay that. Um, it was huge. They, they maybe bought into all of that propaganda that, wow, this we're really fighting a great fight. And it, and it wasn't. The war really didn't end and it gradually slid into World War II, of course. Um, but Hemingway's, I would say in a way that all of his writing was greatly influenced by the war. He said of In Our Time, his first book of short stories, it's all about the war, but the war is not in it, which is a wonderful quote that's so representative of Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not giving you 
extensively these battle scenes, but the war he's talking about is the emotional war, the undercurrent of that sense of loss, that search for home, that search for belief. What do you really believe in? So I think coming out of the <clears throat> war and questioning a lot of this um, propaganda and the things that people say, and what, what does it really mean? What does all this euphemistic language mean? And so Hemingway, I think, really began to question that. He writes about that in Farewell to Arms, too. You know, all of the names of streets had dignity, you know, that stuff that you can, can see and touch and all this other stuff that's so amorphous. But um, I think in questioning the war and in turn questioning a whole belief structure, I mean, it's huge, radically huge questioning of the things that you live for that shift from the 19th century. Right. Right. And uh, institutional belief structures, family, church, um, and the shift into this kind of drifting, you know, what is it? They were questioning, and Hemingway in particular, what do you really believe in? What mm -hmm. do you believe in? What do you live for? What do you really live for? Not what you've been told to live for, not what you um, thought you were going to live for, but really, truly questioning it. So the power of that um, desire to strip away that veneer. Mm -hmm. Behind all of the literature, I think of this era, the last generation literature, one of the profound overarching themes is that contrast between life as we would like it to be and life as it is. Mm -hmm. Fitzgerald's great Gatsby, the, the power of that is that he shows repeatedly that juxtaposition of the surface glimmer and the underlying dust and dirt um, that stands right. in conflict with that. So um, that contrast between those two ideas of um, the ideal versus the real and coming in confrontation with that creates this just really huge emotional resonance that is, I think that readers relate to no matter where you are in life. I know my students relate to it very powerfully because they're in a position too where college students say, yeah, you're supposed to be in college. You know, what, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to major in science because my parents say I need to make money or I need to major in business when really they might really want to major in the humanities and do so <laughs> a contrast between societal expectations and, and personal belief structures and that really large, profound question of what is life? <laughs> it's such the mystery. What is life? The mystery. Well, in, in the sun also rises. Let's, let's see what happens. So it's a couple people, they're all in Europe, which I presume is that it's not just a lost generation that lost its purpose, which is America. America perpetually seems to go through its own loss of innocence. Like every major work sort of strips us of its own innocence or its delusions or its bad. Yeah, Henry said he thought every generation was a lost generation. And I think that's that seems to capture a lot of American, the milestones in American literature, also the great books sort of, you know, from... So these Americans are in Europe, which Europe in some way is just a backdrop and they like it, it's cheap. It's, you can drink a lot, it's fun, there's lots of things happening, but they're sort of trying to really find themselves and there's just a backdrop to them that Europe is, and Paris where Hemingway of course lived. And if we look at these few people, they, their constellation is very complex, sort of they're just moving in relation to each other. That becomes the kind of 
the 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 ring or whatever you want to call it the stage where they are fighting or they're struggling or they're trying to figure out what is the meaning of me being here mm-hmm. all in relation to each other it seems to me very much a book about people who will only find relation in being with each other or with breaking with each other there's no guarantee that the human bond or love is going to be that maybe also strife and conflict but i think what's compelling what's unusual when I reread the book, I thought the book takes place in a couple of weeks with a few people. And it's kind of remarkable, you know, some novels are like that. They actually give you a handful of people and the whole world seems to happen between them. And if we could say something about a couple of the characters, I know you've written, um, you know, really compellingly, I think about Brad Ashley, the figure in this book, which seems to be one of the planets around all these little stars that are orbiting. But just if we talk about the beginning, we just said, you said the beginning now is the, the Robert Cohen is the beginning here. And he's the first line, sentence, the first words of this book. And he is actually boxing champion at Princeton. Or was at Princeton where you do your research? Yeah. It located in the heart of Americans striving for acceptability, elite status, which is what Gatsby is about. The Buchanans are also that, they go to yeah. Yale. Yeah. But Robert Cohen is trying hard trying hard to become American. And that to me, when I reread it, I thought when I was in high school, I didn't read it like this. I didn't see this. Is, this book starts with this Jewish student at Princeton who wins a big prize as a boxer and wants to really be accepted, it seems, by these mm-hmm. other macho guys, but it doesn't quite work out. Yeah, he's an outsider. And in a way, the, no, the whole novel is about that phenomenon of being an outsider. Uh, raising the question, where do you belong? You know, where where is home for you? And certainly they're all displaced characters. I mean, that sets, um, takes place apart from America and they're drifting around in uh, Paris and Spain. And you mentioned the idea of movement. I think movement is very crucial in the trajectory of the novel because and Hemingway's art is actual movement you know ongoing it takes us with these senses sometimes that this these ongoing prepositional phrases he's going out into up over in oh and on and on and on and you can't let go and it's it's sort of like the nursery rhyme over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house and you're kind of saying okay where are you taking us you get caught up in that that movement and all of these characters are searching for identity, Mm -hmm. searching for meaning, searching for love. Mm -hmm. Um, In one of the key passages, Jake reflects on all that's going on and he finally says, you know, I really um, want to know what it means. I just wanted to learn how to live in it. And maybe if I learned how to live in it, by that I'd come to know what it means. So the novel is very much about that living, what it means to live and that sense of movement in the novel and what are you tied to? What are your commitments? What are your allegiances? What is keeping you from having authenticity in life and relationships? So the characters, I mean, Robert, I'm looping around and I will get back to Robert Cohn because obviously he's crucial. In the novel, and Jake likes him. He he says, "I rather like him," and he and he really um, kind of sympathizes with Cohen's dilemmas as an impossible romantic. You know, 
He tells Cohen, you can't get away from yourself by moving from place to place. You know, Cohen wants to go to South uh, America with, Co with Jake. And um, Jake says, it's just like in the movies, you know? It's just like in the movies. You have to find yourself where you are. You can't get away from yourself by moving from place to place. So yes, you do have Cohen, I think, as um, this a Jewish character. Um, and I think that's really important that I don't think it's an anti-Semitic presentation of Cohen. And my student readers tend not to find that either. What they tend to identify with, with Cohen is any of our sense of being an outsider, uh, wherever we are trying to, to align ourselves with a particular group or a particular thing that we want to do, but we maybe, maybe can't break our way into it. Um, and the struggle for that and how, how does that struggle sometimes compromise mm -hmm. at heart? Um, I think that Colin, the idea of that he's Jewish, he's the stereotypical historic concept of the Jews who are displaced peoples and looking for home, searching for home. So it's really um, a key component of the novel that, that they are all searching for home. You mm -hmm. sense that they're all cut off kind of from America. Jake does get um, mail from America and some periodicals from America, but they're, they're, you get no sense of their history, really. They've just sort of like landed here um, in Paris and then Spain, and they're really searching for who they are. And so that concept of finding authenticity of self is crucial in the novel. So you have, um, with the bullfighting, students are, up, students are probably more troubled by the bullfighting than the idea of um, any possible uh, racism or anti-Semitism in the novel. They can't figure out what is this bullfighting stuff mm -hmm. here because it's not a part of our American um, scene, definitely. Um, but Hemingway uses the bullfighting as a kind of metaphor for what this novel is all about, that um, the authenticity of the bullfighter, Pedro Romero is um, absolutely, I'll just read a line from this where Jake is talking to Brad about Romero and um, his bullfighting. He says that Romero never made any contortions. Always it was straight and pure and natural in line. The others twisted themselves like corkscrews, their elbows raised and leaned against the flanks of the bull after his horns had passed to give a faked look of danger. Afterward, all that was faked turned bad and gave an unpleasant feeling. Romero's bullfighting gave real emotion because he kept the absolute purity of line in his movements and always quietly and calmly let the horns pass him close each time. He did not have to emphasize their closeness. Brett saw how something that was beautiful done close to the bull was ridiculous if it were done a little way off. I told her how since the deaths of Joselito, all the bullfighters had been developing a technique that simulated this appearance of danger in order to give a fake emotional feeling while the bullfighter was really safe. Romero had the old thing, the holding, of his purity of line through the maximum of exposure while he dominated the bull by making him realize he was unattainable while he prepared him for the killing. I've never seen him do an awkward thing, Brett said. You won't until he gets frightened, I said. 
it's very important that Jake wants Brett to see the authenticity of this bullfighting because Brett doesn't have herself either. She's caught in an image. She's um, the figure that the men dance around. They don't want to see her. And the novel in many respects is around her search to have herself. And Jake leads her to that. He's constantly aware of, of penetrating that fake veneer, that simulated life and really getting to the center and the authenticity of self. And I think he really, it's a wonderful sacrificial novel in that sense. I mean, Jake, if you talk about what is love, I think he gives himself up to love Brett and to lead her to herself. Mm-hmm. The time you get to the end of the novel and she's um, crying in the hotel room because uh, either Romero has sent her away or, she, or perhaps she sent him away. She says she sent him away, but it's questionable, you know, that he might've just himself left and she's crying. It's the first time you actually see her crying, but um, she finally says to Jake when he comes to meet her there in that hotel room, he said, I, it was me, Jake, it was me. It wasn't the show. When Jake first meets Brett, he's, he's all upset whether she's with gays it, who he says really make him very, it's a wonderful, Hemingway's at an early stage is introducing really issues that are so pertinent to today. Uh, she comes in into the novel with this group of gay guys and they're not named as gay. Again, Hemingway's not going to tell you, hey, look, reader, look at this. Right. But he he portrays them. So, and they're, they're mocking the institutional idea of gender. They're playing and dancing big hippily and, joking about wanting to dance with Georgette, the whore who's there. And in the midst of that, she comes in, Brett comes in and Brett, uh, Jake's really upset. He said, and with them was Brett. Um, and with them was Brett. And he says, I don't know why, but they just make me so angry. You know, of course, they, you know, they don't really want Brett sexually and, and Jake does and he can't have her sexually. Mm-hmm. In that scene, when Brett asks him, Molly, what, what, what's bothering you? Why are you so upset? And Jake says, just this whole show, this whole show is all. And a reference, I think, to, again, that outer appearance that mm-hmm. Brett has to live in the world of that show. And she's really striving, I think, to have herself, to be authentic. So um, that to it's interesting because I think some of the criticism of the novel is that Hemingway is this macho guy and that he didn't like women. I think that's so wrong. I think he absolutely understood women within the context of what they had to deal with. You have to put them within the context mm-hmm. of the times. And, and what options do they have? What options did Brett have in the world that she she was in? So I think Hemingway... And I kind of want to ask you one thing about this. It's interesting that Brett let's say she's trying to find herself, but she's constantly seen in a certain way. You could say she's objectified, reduced, whatever. She's very beautiful, attractive. Everybody wants her. Jake can't have her, but she's trying to find herself, which I think at least is a recognition. Here is not, this is a flat character of a woman. Here's a woman in search of something which I 
the novelist cannot even really put my finger on yet. The whole point of the book is that you can't name that readily and say, oh, here's the fully fleshed out figure. And Hemingway said at some point, I think you quoted in one of your essays, he didn't want to create characters, he wanted to create people on the page. So Brett's struggle is one of the themes, Jake's struggle to be himself. Robert Cohn struggled to be himself. And, and, but this doesn't lead to their authentic self or once they hit it, they're there. Because whatever options are available are circumscribed. She can be a beautiful woman or a rich woman or a desired woman. She cannot just break out of these perceptions, just like Robert Cohn ultimately cannot totally break out of the, of the anti-Semitism that's around him. Like he can do yeah. whatever he wants. Yeah. He can... When he becomes himself, ironically, the other ones say, oh, see, you're not like us. <laughs> and he says, well, I don't want to be my, I want to be like you, but that's a betrayal of himself, so there's no way. But I think that's really interesting what you're saying, that people have struggled with these characters because they don't um, sometimes come out to what we want them to come out to sort of feel, oh, empowered, or there's a kind of redemption. There's very little redemption to Robert Cohen. What he ultimately does, he beats up the bullfighter. It's a horrific scene. It's to me, I think, very much kind of the bullfighter's this Christ-like apparition. When Hemingway's prose quite suddenly becomes very lyrical when he describes him and he describes the bullfight and Belmonte is fake and this guy's real and it goes on for pages and you suddenly feel like you're in a slightly different style. I feel that Hemingway's really so moved or Jake is so moved by something. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're saying is what Brett is at the end of the novel, she says, this was me, but you just said, we don't know what that meant. Yeah. Had she just lost what she had really wanted or had she actually said, I didn't really want this. So are you saying that that's part of the power of the novel, that it's still- I, I think it's part of the power. It's, not- it's also part of the frustration, I think, for people. What I said, you know, what you said earlier, the, the book is sort of provoking in a certain way. There's something that you sometimes you feel you you're carried along it's just very propulsive and then you feel jesus can't they just settle this in a way and they get drunker and drunker and a stupor and confusion and then they're sort of sort of they're drifting around in this in this fiesta it's this yeah. it's maybe a half a mile and they keep on missing each other running into each other seeing each other one is passed out one is this one is that one is in that room one is in this room there's something Hemingway seems to say, you cannot resolve my questions. I cannot turn the plot in this way or invent for Brett a certain assurance about herself that would resolve her as a coherent, nice, empowered woman. That's just not in the cards for her. Which which makes um, valid and powerful the ambiguous ending of the novel that people <laughs> stumble over. What does it mean that... Um, when Jet breaks, Brett says we could have had such a lovely time, and and Jake says, "Isn't it pretty to think so? Isn't it pretty to think so?" So ambiguous, and again, just highlighting that idea of the surface prettiness, um, the mm-hmm. idea uh, as opposed to the reality, and um, maybe part of the power of Hemingway's writing is what you're saying that there is no tidy resolution. I mean, it does, it um, bothers my students that American literature in general, not just Hemingway, um, doesn't have tidy resolutions. And as one student 
came up to me mid-semester once. He said, Dr. Miller, does anything happy ever happen in American literature? <laughs> because so often um, you do have these works that are built around this quest, this incredible quest, certainly for identity too, um, realizing that America is more of an idea than a place to start with. <laughs> and that <laughs> is not any set tidy resolution, which is again that um, contrast between the, the, that kind of 19th century idea that, oh yes, you can, everything can be neatly resolved and lined up and structured. And this new shock of the new, as Ezra Pound said, and with modernisms, that's shattering all of that certainty, shattering all of that and, and bringing us closer to the mystery of life. The mystery, was, it's ultimately, you know, the mystery. And I think, I think your student's question is really good to say, are there moments, is there happiness? Because it is America, we have sort of the idea of the good life, there's a kind of promise, there is a certain kind of city on a hill, Eden in a way, in American literature more than elsewhere, because it's an, an invented place for many people, not for all people, of course, Native Americans who feature quite prominently in early Hemingway, especially. But to go to this moment of happiness, I was thinking the son also writes, they're very happy in the, in the taxi when they drive home from the bar, which is the book, the end of book one, yeah. I think, Brett and Jake, they're happy yeah. together. He is impotent, warm wounded. She knows that. They said, we can never consummate this, but I love you, you know that. That seems to me happy. There's another moment when they go trout fishing, never been trout fishing, don't even know what that means. When I read that and they fall asleep and they have lunch and they, they seem happy. There are moments, they seem quite happy. There's a kind of different happiness, the anticipation of the fiesta. Something is happening. You can feel other people getting excited. You're not even part of it. You don't speak the language you don't know, but there's a certain kind of communal sense of impending joy. So I think there are moments in the book. I think what we want is something to, there should be a conclusion to this. And I think maybe the title of the book, which is from a quote from the Bible, well, it'll happen again. It'll happen differently tomorrow. Tomorrow you may, not, you may be deeply disappointed. I think even the, the Greek count, and he buys all the champagne, it's completely over the top. And he says, let's not sleep, let's go to the water Boulogne, have a picnic. That's a strange, brief, tiny moment of what more can we expect from life? The question your student has said, we want more than that. We want some coherence, some assurance. And this assurance is not given. In Hemingway, you're gonna, you might as well do this because the next thing is going to happen. It's going to just derail all of this yeah and i think what you the quote you used earlier you said when jake says i want to learn how to live in it it's a weird book that is so immediate and then jake says i i want to be in it and there's i think this attempt to grab life to be there drinking is one tool for that sex could be one not for jake so death becomes that through the bullfight I felt the book was very much set up in the beginning, like sex isn't available. So let me like look at death and say there's something real here or something simple. I think the the answer in the book, if we can state it so definitively, is that this book, and I think much of Hemingway's art, is about the search for intimacy, not sex, 
intimacy. Um, not love is defined in kind of um, institutional definitions, but true. what is true intimacy? And I think some of the things that you highlighted, like the fishing scenes, they're so intimate, they're so real. And so the, I think the pattern in the book, as we see it through Jake and his relationship with Brett in particular, is raising that question of how do you find intimacy and what is real intimacy? And part of the, um, the bullfighting motif is important, I think, in there. And I'm not an aficionado. Um, Hemingway makes a big point about that with when Jake is meeting with Mon uh, Montoya at the hotel. Right. And it's recognized that, that Jake is an aficionado, but most Americans are not aficionados. And in that passage, it describes it, that Jake and Montoya actually touch each other. It's the actual touching. Um, so the bullfighting is really important. And I think what you see with the bullfighting and the prominence in the, the way that Hemingway describes the bullfighting scenes, particularly when Brett is there and Jake is trying to show Brett you know, this passage where they're at the first bullfight and, and Hemingway repeats over and over again, Brett saw the way, Brett saw the way, Brett saw the way, Brett saw the way, Brett saw the way. That important repetition that Hemingway uses over and over in his writing. Um, and with the bullfighting, you're getting the whole concept of the, bull, the bullfighter who's in this kind of private space. And he's luring the bull close, close in. And the, the bullfighters who are just simulating this act and awkwardly doing it aren't really endangering themselves. The authentic bullfighters and the authentic people in life, in relationships, they have to be totally vulnerable. Mm -hmm. About vulnerability, you have to be totally vulnerable. And the, so the, you're luring the bull in and as close, close as you can, but you're endangering and you might get killed. Mm -hmm. And that, that idea carries over into the whole novel in terms of um, that search for intimacy. And it's not sex. That's what's so brilliant about the novel too, that Jake cannot have sex traditionally. That we're talking not about sex, but we're talking about intimacy. And what does that mean between people? And that cab scene you mentioned, I think is so crucial where Jake and Brett are away from all the people. There's a contrast in the novel between the public space and the private space over and over again. There are very few moments where it's totally private. There's always this swirl of people. But in that cab scene, it's really beautiful the way Hemingway has, he talks about the acetylene torches outside and the light is coming in to the cab and it's lighting up Brett's face, but it's distorting her face. It's just like a modernist portrait. It's distorting mm -hmm. her face. What the modernist painters were doing when Hemingway said he wanted to write the way the painters painted. Mm -hmm. He wanted to get inside all the mm -hmm. Picasso said he painted what he could not see with his eyes. Mm -hmm. An artist create that amorphous emotional reality that really can't be touched. And so that Hemingway is like a modern. So that scene where the light's coming in, it's distorting Brett's face and it begins to go down deep inside. And Hemingway describes how Brett Jakes talks about he saw all the way into Brett all the way in through 
her, her eyes, you know, um, deeper and deeper. I should, I could read from that passage, but I. I I'm thinking about one thing when we look for this thing. What you just said was really interesting when you said the, the bullfight, okay, there's death so close that the Torey or bullfighter gets so close to death, but in some way when he makes Brett see all this as if he's showing you can be so close to life. But the book, when I just when you just said that, I thought the whole book seems to be these five or whatever, how many people, there are six people constantly having these near misses and avoiding each other as if they're all in a ring trapped with each other because they get into these skirmishes and fights and really have near breakups. And then there's a lot of logistics of who's going to come join them, who's going to not join them. It's not mm -hmm. worth it. Don't bother. Be here. It's like all these near misses. Yeah. So Hemingway, I don't think, gives us a book that says, oh, the only truth in life is death. This bullfight. No, he says, the truth is in these encounters of what you call intimacy that may or may not be available at short moments, and then it may pass out again, just like the bull passes us, and then that's it. It's not that intimacy yeah. is going to be this continual shared sense, because we also change a lot. So it's as if they're all, they're passing each other, they're getting incredibly close, too close, much too close for incredible discomfort or pain, or they're, they're hitting each other or whatever happens, or Brett rejects them, or there's a kind of Cone, who knows, there's a kind of trip they take on the side. We don't know what happens during that trip. Uh, so, so there's a lot of possibility or instances of intimacy, but intimacy not as settling into domesticity and a relationship. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, challenging a lot of just the traditional notions of, um, of what matters uh, in life. And I think that idea of death, too, so often people say that Hemingway is art is um, tragic that it's very much about death, you know, and he wrote a whole book on bullfighting called Death in the Afternoon, but, but actually, I think what you're talking about and what I think I see going on is that Hemingway, in a way, redefines the notion of tragedy. In fact, the, this whole expatriate group that I study, Hemingway and the Murphys and Archibald MacLeish and John Dos Passos, they're in 1925, they were sitting on the um, terrace of Villa America. And as artists, they're discussing tragedy, the idea of tragedy. What is tragedy? And finally, they came to this conclusion and you know, said, you know, it's so obvious. Tragedy isn't death, but tragedy is life and its terrible possibilities. Tragedy is life in its terrible possibilities, in our helplessness in the face of ourselves. Uh, what a wonderful definition of tragedy and a, a definition that I think um, lies behind Hemingway's art. Yeah. Yeah. Us life. He's not showing us death. He's showing us life in its terrible complications and our vulnerability in the face of life and the complications. <clears throat> And yet that, um, that search for intimacy by confronting that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you one thing about the bullfight, which is also, which I also was wondering about, and since you know this novel much better, when he essentially allows Brett to meet Romero, to say this most beautiful man, never seen no hands, boy, his handsome as this, and he knows she's gonna have this affair with him or this relationship, he lets that happen. He does not at any moment intercede. But 
my understanding was it costs him his relationship to this whole group that he's the one American aficionado, the one who gets it. And they all say, you betrayed this by letting this woman get together with this boy. And in some ways, I think here we see again, it's not that this is the recipe for her happiness and his own happiness. He kind of has to sacrifice his own moment of belonging because he arrives as kind of the one who is local, speaks Spanish, et cetera, gets all the rituals. And then he does something that they all find is re- they find incredibly offensive. Yeah. He allows this to happen. So he kind of sacrifices his own moment of belonging. And I don't even know if it's a sacrifice. He just feels like, he has to do it. There's no permanent belonging, it seems. Yeah, I think that's well put. And I think to me that scene where, and in my students too, they get so angry, you know, how, how, because Brett comes to him and says, you know, I'm just a goner. I need to, you know, I need to be with Romero and you have to, you have to set this up. And he does. And you can question, what, what is he doing? What is he thinking? And he is violating that whole, um, aficionado, uh, concept um but the larger issue i think is his um, commitment to brett and his commitment to brett finding her own self her own authenticity and he and he realizes i think that this is significant for her to she's joined up with this guy who's set up as this kind of perfect model of um of authenticity is very much, very much himself. And, and so Brett goes with him. And then who knows? It's vintage Hemingway. We don't know what happens with Brett and Romero in those scenes when she ends up left alone in the hotel, ultimately. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, Jake has sacrificed himself definitely in the end there with that. And then you've got the culminating uh, scene to the book where he goes to San Sebastian. It's interesting because San Sebastian is where Brett had gone with Cohen. Right. And he goes to San Sebastian and those beautiful scenes of diving in the water, they're very, um, very religious to me, very baptismal. You know, he dives deep, deep, deep. um, As there's a, a woman on the raft up above him with her boyfriend and she's exposing her back. And it's that contrast of the the sexual and the, the um, everyday, and then this he dives down, down under, and um, and then ultimately, of course, goes back when the telegram on the beach. He gets a telegram and says, yeah. basically, uh, your friend really needs you in Madrid. He's actually taking this baptismal cleansing. You think, okay, now he left all this behind. Yeah. Saying, and then he gets the call. Says, uh, and, he got, and he says, you know, boy, you know, he mocks himself for, you know, stupid, you stupid guy, you know. You send her out with another guy, and then when she says to come to you, you come. But then he does go and join her. And that those things are interesting at the end because he gets really drunk. If you tally up, my students love to tally up the number of drinks that these students, but in that last scene where they're drinking in the, um, the restaurant in Spain and Madrid. In Spain. And Brett is saying to him, don't, you don't have to get drunk, Jake. You don't have to get drunk. Don't get drunk, Jake. Don't get drunk. You don't have to. And it's kind of ironic um, because she's the one who's been getting drunk, you know, throughout the, the novel. Um, she's saying, don't get drunk, Jake. You don't have to. 
How do you know? Don't. You'll be all right. I'm not getting drunk. I'm just drinking a little wine. I like to drink wine. Don't get drunk, Jake. Don't get drunk. That repetition again. So here you see, I, I do see that there is some growth in Brett here that she's really finding some authentic sense of self at some level. And um, she's now ironically kind of leading Jake mm. the other way all around. And um, the passage I was thinking of earlier that I think is really interesting when they're in the taxi um, on that first, that first night we actually meet Brett, but we were sitting apart and we jolted close together going down the old street. Brett's hat was off. Her head was dark. Her head was back. I saw her face in the lights from the open shops. Then it was dark. Then I saw her face clearly as we came out on the avenue. The street was torn up and men were working on the car tracks by the light of the settling flares. Brett's face was white and the long line of her neck showed in the bright light of the flares. The street was dark again and I kissed her. Um, don't touch me, she said, please don't touch me. Um, she was sitting up now, my arm was around her and she was leaning back against me and we were quite calm. She was looking into my eyes with that way she had of looking that made you wonder whether she really saw out of her own eyes. They would look on and on after everyone else's eyes in the world would have stopped looking. She looked as though there were nothing on earth she would not look at like that. She'd been looking into my eyes all the time. Her eyes had different depths. Sometimes they seemed perfectly flat. Now you could see all the way into them. That cab scene really takes us all the way inside Brett. And I think it's huge and it really demonstrates this overarching theme of um, getting beyond that surface view. And as I said earlier, that's what all the great art of this era was about, that how do you, how do you create the emotional truth in mm -hmm. art? Henry wanted to paint the way the painters painted. He said that I wanted to write the way the painters painted. And he was um, trying in his art to find the way to get the underbelly to Movie. A lot of the art of the early 20th century, like with Sinclair Lewis, was very much into the surface of things. Mm. And now suddenly you get this art of Hemingway that's just crashing down under that surface, mm -hmm. finding ways to do it. And that's just the, the emotional resonance of it. And it's absolutely real and honest. I, I want to ask you um, things that I know about the, I don't know, the, the the vast continent of Hemingway studies, sort of, I just read my way around. I read a few biographies, Mary Dearborn's, and then I read uh, uh -huh. Bloom's book, um, Everybody Behaves Badly, sort of, which gives you the actual people behind right. the characters and sun also rises. There's been a kind of interesting set of articles that identify some of the minor characters, the bullfighter, or the, the, the African-American band leader who ran a nightclub who was really prestigious, married to a French woman. So they are real people who Hemingway turns into occasions for this work. And then what I do know, which happened to be very moving and important for me intellectually, when Toni Morrison gave the talk that became Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the American Literary Imagination. It's a book from the late 80s, I believe. She gave that talk 
at Harvard College when I was a student. And I remember sitting in this huge, huge room, Toni Morrison giving a lecture, and I honestly wasn't quite clear what she was doing, but I took away, and of course I've read the essay now many times, I got away the argument that she said two really striking things. She said Hemingway, who was quite important, and I probably couldn't imagine that he would have black readers. And she says, for reasons I don't need to get into, and she's not interested in canceling him or something like that, but she said Hemingway's depiction of black characters, she calls them Africanist, is ultimately artless because they fulfill a function to prop up a certain kind of struggle for a formation of a kind of national identity. And then I think the critic Walter Ben Michaels wrote a book also where he just makes a similar argument about Cohn, how in a way we need this Jewish character to prop up a kind of racial project of identity. But this is all to say there's many critics, there's much more debate, there are many, many essays on this, which I've seen or read a few of them, but I'm kind of curious, when we teach today, there's an important scene, there's a kind of African-American band leader who, whom Brett is really good friends with, yeah. he's a good friend of mine, he's here, he's kind of important, you can sort of picture him, I see him through the eyes of Casablanca, very problematic in a way, but that's another one of those figures um, of an African-American presence who really doesn't have a lot of language. And in the book, he actually sings a song, a particular song, and he has um, dialogue, which are just ellipses. And then the next chapter opens with Bill coming back from Vienna, where presumably a black boxer who lives in Germany, but we assume he's American, had a fight in Vienna, beat a local boy, and the, the, the people who paid for the fight didn't want to pay him because you can't beat mm. And there are these two moments, the N-word is very prominent. They keep on referring to them, the N-word, the N-word, the N-word. He was an awesome N-word, so this kind of language from the 20s. And I'm just curious what you think that, I think Morrison allowed us to say, the point is not to cancel or not. The point is to say, what does this do in a book? And I do think a hundred years later, the one good thing is, if there's anything good, we assume that there are many black readers for Hemingway. Like that's what Tony Morrison said. He couldn't assume that. Well, he made a wrong assumption. We're a hundred years later. We have students and we have friends. And of course, like everybody has access to these books. So I'm just curious how that has played out in the Hemingway communities, because I think what you did in your essay in Hemingway and Women was to say, it's not about canceling or defending, but it's trying to find out what is Hemingway doing for us, not for himself. Who he was, we don't know, we can watch the documentaries, yeah. but what does he do for us? He puts something in front of us. So I'm just curious how you see this in the Hemingway communities, which I know also, you know, there's a complicated dimension to it because there's, sort of, um, what are they called? Um, house museums, uh, they are family members, there's a legend, there's a publishing industry, so it's different from other authors. There's more investment in Hemingway maybe as a cultural icon. I think um, some of what you said earlier that, first of all, I mean, Hemingway was very aware, I think, of, of people within society and um, the reality of, of these kind of social constructs. And I think he was very aware, uh, I don't think he was himself anti-Semitic or 
racist. I think he was aware of what people in society had to do to become real. And so he was aware, I think, of the difficulties for those who are categorized in certain ways, like the Cohen Jewish phenomenon or the, the black phenomenon. And he was, a, he was aware, I think, of how um, people in those groups had to try to accommodate themselves to the world in which they're living. And so he kind of presents that um, awareness very powerfully. I would use, if, if you don't mind, I'd make use an example from his first, first book of short stories, which um, the story is called The Battler. I don't know if you know this oh, story. Yes. And it's very much using, so Nick Adams comes, he's leaving town, going off to war, as it turns out, but he's leaving town and he um, hooks a ride on the train and is knocked off the train and he lands, lands with these um, guys, that we would call them hobos at the time, homeless guys. And one was an ex-fighter, Ed Francis, and he's being looked after by Bugs, his character Bugs, who's a black guy. And um, in and so Nick interacts with these two, and it's fascinating the way Hemingway presents it. And it's a difficult story to teach because the N word is repeated throughout there. However, um, Hemingway shifts the wording, and again here you see Hemingway, the word guy who knows every word counts. He's shifting words between uh, Negro the N-word, the white man. It's really a story about here's Nick, this guy coming from a kind of privileged white world. He's going out into the world and he's suddenly like, what in the world's going on here? And he encounters these two guys. And um, if you look closely at the way Hemingway uses those words, he shows that Bugs is very aware of himself as a black guy in a white world, of himself as a black guy performing the way that the white guy would expect him to, but then also performing as his own authentic self. So when he shows Bugs um, doing stereotypical things like cooking over the campfire, this uh, meal to give to ads and then to also Nick, um, Hemingway uses the N-word to describe him. But when Bugs is really looking directly after ads and, and being this good kind of friend and caretaker, Hemingway uses the Negro. And then he also interlaces there um, when he's referring initially to Ed Francis, the boxer, the white boxer, he just calls him um, the young man, the young man, the young man, the young man, um, or the man, the man, Nick is the, is the young man. But when we get into the group with bugs and there's bugs and ads and Nick, suddenly the language shifts and Hemingway shows um, this awareness of Nick, the white guy, the white guy and the white man. And the, Hemingway's showing us very, powerfully the reality of this kind of stratification and discrimination in society. And Nick 
doesn't know quite what to do with it. And we don't know quite what to do with it. But um, I think that Hemingway's really doing some fascinating things there with, with the way he uses those words. And it's not just the use of the N-word for its own self. I see the same thing in the scene with um, in Sanos Arises where Bill Gorton comes back and he's talking about the, the Black Prize fighter. And really when you see that whole scene, I mean, there's a real respect for that prize fighter. He's been, you know, standing up against the kind of white world that's telling him he's gotta be corrupt, he's gotta give in, he's gotta um, give away this fight. And um, he's shown as really a strong guy and Bill Gorton really likes him and he, takes him home with him and, and helps him find some clothes. And um, there's a real authenticity and respect there. So why does Hemingway use the N-word over and over again as Bill Garton is describing to Hemingway this boxer? I think in a way it's Hemingway is using that word uh, as a kind of mockery of the word that he often, when he's using language, we recognize that he understands the irony of language. At the end of his story, Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, which is a horrible story about a couple who are totally unconnected. Um, and the story ends with, they were very happy. Well, it's totally out, they're not really happy. They were very happy. So Hemingway will use words to show um, that you've got to kind of deconstruct the word. And so I think in that scene with the boxer, mm-hmm. prize fighter, um, Bill Gordon is really showing great admiration for this boxer as real integrity against the society that lacks integrity. And um, sort of mocking the word and using it in a good way that the N word is like, wow, he really is this individual. Does that make any sense? It made a lot of sense, actually. And I think, thank you, because what you're showing is that there, I think there are two necessary moves when reading, rereading these books today, one is to think, okay, Hemingway is a myth unto himself, who sort of has, in some ways, almost too much stature. So, but we sh- we would do well to read it really carefully. And then with two things in mind, one is, first of all, he is capturing his time. But what you're saying, he's capturing actually what this word does in his time, and he's aware of it. It's not a kind of oblivious. And I think Morrison's uh, kind of, interesting argument. She said, oh, he is aware. She says occasionally he slips. And this is actually what she says, literally, he slips in a way because there's a certain kind of investment in something else that he doesn't want to let go. But I think what you're saying is that this is for us an occasion to understand how this word is wielded in different contexts, what it does. And what you're saying is I think what's really challenging but i think also necessary and it can be done with students to say okay let's look at how this word is used who uses it where's the narrator where's a character who's speaking why is he saying these incredibly positive things and saying this word as if he can't either get out of his own worldview or he's saying i'm saying these really positive things about this black price fighter who was just amazing this noble person like really strong like wanted to do the right thing had the kind of right on his side and yet he's trapped in this worldview, not really trapped because he's trying to break out of it, but he's over-determined by the conditions. So 
I think what you're saying is we can look at these moments and open them up rather than, and all I wanted to sort of sort of think about is because we're living in a world where lots of people have objections. Yeah. I'm sometimes a little bit probably impatient with people saying you can't do things in universities. And I think, well, I teach literature all the time. I teach a lot of books that have the N-word in them. And I've actually edited and published books, um, including stories by Nella Larson, Zora Neale Hurston, James Paul mm-hmm. Johnson, Hemingway. So there's such a range. And I think for students to grasp that range is as important as what I practice is not to articulate that word, unnecessary. And and you know the argument that people said, oh, unless you can say that word, you're no longer reading the book. I think you you made a lot of sense right now of a scene without having to use that word because Mm -hmm. the word has retained a kind of power. I I had Randall Kennedy from Harvard University on this podcast uh, two years ago who wrote a book called The N-Word, but he spelled it out this strange like uh, history of a of a remarkable word, and so I think what we're saying is with Hemingway, it's not a matter of um, dust heap of history cancelled or the greatest writer who ever lived, but say he's opening up still something for America to understand itself, and I think that is that it's not resolved. Yeah. Sometimes, when it, to be honest, when I watch Ken Burns' documentary for. for a good 45 minutes of the hour, I thought, okay, we could have a slightly contrarian view. It's, there's so little texture, it just goes on how he's, and it, there's this kind of endless repetition. He's a master, he's a master, it's a masterpiece, it's a masterpiece. I'm like, why? <laughs> I agree with you. I I wasn't so hot on Ken Burns overall. I, I was surprised. I thought he really, it was pretty bland. I mean, he didn't, uh, introduce any real controversial stuff and it was um, kind of focused on the wives kind of centered around the different wives primarily and the as you say the the artists who themselves talked about the mastery of Hemingway's prose which is is very much there to be sure but um, and I think even what you said earlier this kind of iceberg theory that he strips away a lot and there's a kind of there's a sort of I think you said earlier, kind of emotional undertone or resonance. There's mm-hmm. also a very dangerous emotional undercurrent in these books. It's not just, these people have deep emotions. There's something troubling going on. There are bad things happening. There's a lot of things that from the opening line, Robert Cartman, who was his prize fighter in mm-hmm. Princeton, there's a lot of unsaid stuff about America behind it. Yeah. The, the way maybe Gatsby contains a whole story of who Jay Gatz really was, this whole, where was he from, North Dakota, we cover all that up, we pretend we're something else. So there's a depth to the book, um, and that depth, I think, is is more compelling than saying, oh, he just used a bad word that's yeah. like it's, it's yeah. unredeemable. Yeah, it's that depth that is so powerful, so powerful, and that was the um that's the magic of what Hemingway was able to do and of course we're fascinated myself as a scholar and a reader of Hemingway how did he do that how did he how did he create that powerful undertow in in all of his great works and my students feel it I mean I have students who just are hooked on Hemingway because when they really when they it's fascinating because 
sometimes when they first read it, particularly the short stories, the, the inner time first stories that Hemingway wrote, you think, oh, this is so simple. You know, what, what's going on here? But what's going on is all down under and it's palpable, but, but it's not articulated. Um, and when they begin to see and analyze, I think it's important actually to teach Hemingway today because you really have to analyze, you have to diagnose the text in a way. Um, it was interesting, I was um, the humanities lawyer for Penn State a few years back and I had to go all over Pennsylvania and talk to different groups. And one of the groups I talked to was the doctors at the Hershey Medical School. And my talk was titled, um, Diagnosing the Text. And these doctors, I think, what are these doctors gonna care about Hemingway? But you know, a nice group came out and um, it was fascinating because we talked about, I talked in particular about a story called Indian Camp where Nick is yep. in Indian Camp with his father, doctor father. And the woman's in, in birth and the Dr. Adams has to perform a cesarean using a fishing knife and fishing. Um, right. Oh. And um, That's a terrible husband, story. Um, terrible. Kills himself in the top bunk. And, you know, Nick has seen all of this. And if you read that story, and it's like four pages just on the surface, um, what's going on here? Why does this husband kill himself? But when you step back, into the story, there's there's so much going on there. And in particular, in that story, uh, Uncle George, who's probably the father of that baby, when you pick up on these clues in the text of things um, going on, and Nick at the end, as he leaves the camp with his father, says, where did, where did Uncle George go, Daddy? Oh, he'll be back all right. There are all kinds of little clues in the story that, that explain what might otherwise seem like this highly sensational story. Oh, come on, this is too much. This gruesome cesarean and a, and a suicide. And, um, but when you start to peel away the layers and that's what you're doing with Hemingway's art, you're peeling away the layers and you're getting down in. And, and students are like, wow, when they see and then begin to understand why they're feeling the way they feel in reading the story. Mm -hmm really fascinating. So that becomes a more clinical analysis, I guess, of how the Hemingway, the artist. Which, which artist is a remarkable story to teach to doctors because like Nick Adams says, you know, the, the woman is just screaming in agony and uh, doing this, this cesarean with no tools. And then he says, do they always scream? Like he says, the screams are not important. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, I think that's what a doctor would say because that's what's important right now is just trying to save her life. Right. And, it's not important she's in pain, we have to get through this. But yeah. as a humanist, you read this and it's just hardly readable. And then the husband slit his throat and the bunk under her, you yeah. sort of, it's yeah. just, a, I think what's, for me, what's really why I'm invested in this, this whole project of reading these classics and doing this podcast, because I do live in America today, like you do. And we hear all this, you know, let's defend the classics against all these, you know, rabbit cancel culture people who are too sensitive. I said, no, okay, that's right. Let's keep Hemingway on the on the reading list. And let's read the stories about a woman deciding whether to have an abortion, about mm -hmm. the man trying to, with a probably illegitimate child, the husband kills himself, the ones where debate where there's a date, date rape. So all these stories which confront the things that 
the people who are defending the classics supposedly don't want to talk about. So I actually make this argument that I would think, so you want to be on the side of let's protect Western culture and great books. I'm like, absolutely. Because yes. students would be confronted or given maybe not confronted with, but given a way to think through a moral dilemma that is so difficult for us to think yeah. through. And the importance of having that happen today, not just accept information that's being fed to you, you know, really challenging that. Analy you really learn to analyze when you read these great works, you know, if you really read them well, not for plot. I tell my students, you know, it's not about plot. <laughs> you can tell me that this happened and this happened and this happened. Yes, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Right. So that's where it becomes really fascinating. Um, and I think for students also, I think uh, Ralph Ellison started out like so many writers copying out Hemingway by longhand to sort of get the rhythm of the sentences right. Yeah. That Hemingway's influence, of course, is much broader than it's not just a white male author who produced white male authors. There's a lot of people who are shaped by this um, expansive consciousness. So I want to thank you again. And I just remind our listeners. So this is this was a conversation. Thank you so much um, about Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises with Linda Patterson Miller, who's distinguished professor of English at Penn State, um, the Abington campus. Um, Linda is the author of Letters from the Lost Generation, Gerald and Sarah Murphy and Friends, and several really important articles uh, uh, on Hemingway in relation to this book, uh, one of them in Hemingway and Women, Female Critics and the Female Voice, which I think was a really paradigmatic, important volume of how women critics respond to the characters. Um, and I hope to have you on the podcast again, Linda. It's really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. This was really fun. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books.